1: Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning, and welcome to the Football Digest podcast. Thanks so much for joining me, John Cross, Jeremy Cross, my namesake, and Matt Dunn, Um This morning, um, talking, and lots to discuss. Um, Obviously, guys, and we just had the had the sad news about uh, John Motson, sadly passing away, B- legendary BBC commentator, and I'll um, we'll be paying our tributes to him later in in the show. Also, um, uh, Liverpool will look back upon the Champions League um, uh, tie, which perhaps put a new focus into into the job facing Jurgen Klopp, the Carabao Cup final, and of course, the publication of the white paper. Um, what does that mean for the future of football? But, guys, let's start with Liverpool, shall we? And um, uh, it, it, the, the fallout from Real Madrid. Jeremy, you and I were both at uh, Anfield the other night. I have to say, I left the ground thinking, did I really just see that? I mean, it was the, just the most astonishing game, didn't it? And it, it certainly did put a new context, a new meaning, I think, into the job facing Jurgen Klopp, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I agree with you what you say. I mean, if you think back to the final between those two in Paris nine months ago, you know, I know that obviously that game is remembered for all the wrong reasons now, but if you, if you think about the game itself, it was quite a cagey game. That, you know, there wasn't much to choose between um, the two teams that night in Paris. But on, um, on, on Tuesday night, the, the difference between Real Madrid and Liverpool was so vast, it was alarming to feel you felt like, how have Liverpool gone backwards so quickly um, in that space of time? And the simple answer is probably um, Liverpool's midfield was totally outplayed by a younger, more vibrant, and a better Real Madrid midfield. Um, so it was an astonishing result, but it was a wake-up call to Liverpool, to the owners who were obviously looking for investment, Um John yeah, DeVier and Henry said earlier this week, didn't he, that he doesn't want to sell the club, he wants investment, in but they need serious investment, Liverpool. When you think about the fact that um, some of the bigger, big top six clubs are state owned, Manchester United are probably going to be state owned come next season. They have vast, vast wealth. Chelsea, we've seen how much money they've spent in the last few weeks. And Liverpool, on the face of it, can't compete with those clubs in terms of which players they target. What, what wages they can offer players. So I can't see a solution to the problems that lie at for clock to pass. Yeah.
1: No. Matt, Matt, it is amazing, isn't it? When, when you think, you know, Jeremy raised the, the point there. It's nine months since, you know, if 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 you believe the Champions League vision, the best two teams were in Europe were Real Madrid and Liverpool. And now Liverpool, seven points, I think, off the top four. Yeah. The defence... It, you know is massively struggling. the midfield will it need to rebuild and and frankly, you know it is surprising, isn't it, how far Liverpool has slipped within that short space of time?
0: It shows you what a fickle thing confidence is. um you know last uh, last couple of years, Liverpool have been flying on the clock, they've had belief in themselves, they've got results and made it and probably achievements that so they probably weren't the best team to get to the European Finals but they did it through, you know, Barcelona, you know, case in point. And now that's gone. It's gone completely so badly so that, you know, they can take a 2-0 lead. And when the moment things start going wrong, they just implode. Uh, And that is a disease that's really hard to clear out on the club, but it it needs Klopp to get a hold of it. And I think Klopp, which is going to be the next question, presumably on the lips of certainly the number of Liverpool fans, is whether it should be Klopp but I think he deserves a chance to get a chance to get it right. When we talk about all this money um, that's flying around elsewhere, I look back um, when when Abramovich first arrived in the Premier League and United went off the boil, if, as it were, for three seasons under the pergy, uh, didn't win the title. What eventually, and they had Ruva Van Nistelrooy up front, Wayne Rooney up front, that didn't crack it. What eventually got them back on track was this youngster Cristiano Ronaldo coming good Uh, and basically then he he went again Fergie with another generation of stars and what club's going to find is that key player that can reinvigorate them and breathe fresh life into the side it's not about that they won't necessarily um, John Henry's determined to retain control they're not going to be able to compete financially with the biggest clubs in the division they've got to find a different way of doing it and Klopp is a good enough manager to coach a team to believe in his ways enough to get the, the success that he has brought to the club already and repeat that success. But it's got to be the right players and I don't, don't know looking through that team whether he has the right amount of energy to, um, to, to build that team again and he needs to find somewhere fairly quickly.
1: Yeah. Jeremy, do you, do you think A, a, a where, where is the priority and, and B, you know, following on from Matt's point, is, is Klopp the right man to 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 rebuild it. No doubt his qualities as a manager. I know, you know, this team is a
2: reflection of him, but you know, he's had let's not forget, he's had he's had some really bad luck with injuries, oh, come on, I know we all, all teams get injured, but they haven't more than their fair share. So he's had a lot to contend with. Yeah, look, he's 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 Billy's legacy, Clark, He will whatever happens, he will be revered forever with amongst Liverpool fans. You know, he brought, brought on into the title drought 30 years. Well, he's in his eighth season now. And I just wonder, you know, he's a high-intense manager you know, Klopp, He reminds me of Guadio, uh, Guadio in a lot of ways. And it's just like, how long can he keep that going? And you just think if they don't finish in the top four this year, will he look at it and think, you know what? It's a long battle ahead to get back to where we need to be. Have I got the energy to do it? I hope he stays because he's great for the game. You know, he's a very entertaining manager. He's produced some great sides there. Um, And the priority for me would be, look, I've been writing and talking about it for for ages now, but they clearly need at least two world-class midfielders, one of which could be Jude Bellingham. But I mean, if you were Jude Bellingham watching that game on Tuesday night from your home in Dortmund, you'd be thinking, hmm, I'll go to Real Madrid, probably. Um, And the issue is, I touched on it before, Bellingham would be ideal signing for Liverpool. is someone you can build your midfield around. Is he one of we want to go to Liverpool. I just can not see why he would want to go to Liverpool when you've got, when he can probably have as pick of clubs, any club in the world. So, they're going to have an issue attracting top calibre of player if they're not in the top four, which is, same applies to all the big clubs. If they're not in the Champions League, you know, they've got a problem in that, in that respect. So, I was thinking, it was quite a pivotal, not a pivotal, but a significant moment, which made me chuckle when um, Henderson came off, I think it was about 70 minutes on Tuesday night, Milner went on and I, was just, go- I just Googled it. The combined age of those two is 69. And it's like, there, there's your problem, Jürgen. You need, you need two at least two young, brilliantly good midfielders because Thiago's 30, past 30. Fabinho's going to be 30 this year. Henderson's 32, nearly 33 and Milner. I mean, I, feel, I don't want to single those two out. They've been great servants to Liverpool and great servants to English football, really. But that's the problem. They, they, they don't have an engine room. There's too many miles on the clock, basically.
1: Yeah. Having said that to Jeremy, how, how, how old do you think Luka Modric will be when, when he eventually retires? Or, or let me put it another way. In his, in, his, in his mid-40s, will he still be running Champions League games? It's astonishing, isn't it? When the winner of the World Cup, and it was his
2: last game for Croatia, um, I was thinking you might not see him play again. And obviously, we have been fortunate to see him play again this this year for Real Madrid, but he was just... I don't know, he's one of the greats of his generation, isn't he? But, you know, if you look at the midfield that Real Madrid have, they've got Valverde... Um, and uh, Camavinga, who just ran the show, and they're in their early 20s, so that's a position Liverpool need to be in to have two really, really top-class midfielders who are going to be there for 10 years.
1: Yeah, no, totally. It is weird, isn't it? Because, you know, it's not just the midfield, is it? I mean, the one, the one defender I thought was, who was the exception to the rule the other night was Andy Robertson, who, you know, I mean, massive credit to him. What a player, and what a, what a mentality. He's he's kept motoring and he's kept going, whereas Alexander-Arnold has struggled for confidence without a shadow of a doubt. They're trying out Joe Gomez, who obviously, you know, suffered as much as anyone the other night. Not all his own fault, I hasten to add. Um, and Virgil van Dyke. You saw Virgil van Dyke was so imperious, so untouchable. And yet now, you know, the confidence has even affected him. He's not the player that he was. And you wonder whether that's a physical issue or... or a mentored issue, you. you know, I think it's more likely the latter, i.e. confidence, but you know, you don't know, you just don't know. And it's, it's, it's a massive rebuild on, on the cards. Because- it's, it's, it's interesting, Joe, you say that
0: because another Liverpool player who's never lived up to the height that, that was placed upon him, um, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, mm-hmm. uh, I did an interview with him quite a while back, just after his first bout of serious injuries. And he admitted he was really open. It was a fascinating uh, chat that we had with him. Um, But he admitted that he no longer trusted his body. So although physically he was fine, he didn't believe he could push off with the same pace. He didn't believe that when the ball's over the top, you know, he could get there. And the same with these injuries. I mean, Gomez, for him to have the mental resilience to come back from the physical pain he's been in and to still believe that he can compete without getting injured, same with Van Dyke, even it just seems they, they, they don't seem to have that invincibility that, the, well, certainly Van Dyke used to have. And uh, and I think, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think there's too many people playing with too many problems and not believing in themselves anymore.
1: Look, it's fair to say, isn't it? Surely the Champions League has gone. Um, you know, surely they can't retrieve it from here. But the one, the one, sort of grain of hope that they've got is, is the top four Jeremy do you think they can still make up that ground I mean it's, it's it's a distance now isn't it but you know the the beauty of this season is if you can string three four wins together, you're suddenly back in the mix aren't you
2: yeah look it, it, it will time will tell on what how much damage that result did on Tuesday um, you know they need to get it out of the systems quickly the issue is obviously they've got to go to Real Madrid in three weeks time and you know there will be at risk of another slanking over there. So, you know, these, these heavy defeats, especially the one on Tuesday, because it came at home, it, it sort of burst the bubble of invincibility in terms of Liverpool's European status, uh, like Matt's touched on earlier. So you just don't know how the players are going to react, but like you say, the six points, I think the six points off top four, it's been such a topsy-turvy season. We've seen with Arsenal and Man City, you know, the inconsistency of um, Newcastle, We've been really poor actually for the last month or so, and you just don't know what you're going to get from Tottenham, do you? So, um, you know, I wouldn't put it past Liverpool to get finished fourth. I really wouldn't. But it's going to be a, they're going to have to be, we have to put a consistent run together. And That's difficult at this stage of the season. You've got injuries, you've got tiredness, you know. So, it'd be interesting to see what he does in the second league running club. What what sort of team he puts out? Because if he wants to get in the top four, he probably has to rest a few for that return leg, and you know. You feel the weakened team in Madrid, and they're there on on the ball. Madrid and ball for the kill. You're going to get absolutely battered.
1: Yeah, yeah. Isn't that isn't that what well, famously brought down Brendan Rodgers? Basically, resting players in the bird? Yeah, well, left
2: can out. Remember? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It hurt players. Didn't it? I that neverland relationship really hurt hurt players. It, it would seem to me, Matt, that sort of that fourth, you know, spot is he, is there for the taking, basically. It's a it's a question, isn't it? Who wants it, you know, sort of Newcastle, Tottenham, Liverpool. I, I have to say I think that Tottenham would be would be my my, my favourite. For some reason,
0: they've been a bit flaky again under Conte. You, we thought he'd coached that out of them, but they're they're dropping points where they shouldn't. And I mean it the, the, the chemistry there just doesn't seem quite right at the moment. Um so if Liverpool Kamper run together you know, I think it is it not, I think seven point. I think they're just behind Spurs if they win their two games and Liverpool, but they're going to be so close. I don't see United with the momentum they've got should be safely into the top four. And I don't see Arsenal and Manchester City giving up the lead they've got. Um, so it is just between, I think Spurs and unfortunately Newcastle, their problem all season has been they've made so much of so little. Um, in terms of keeping those clean sheets uh, and making the most of them, turning them into three points, that there was going to be a slip at some point where they weren't winning games comfortably enough to come slightly off the boil and still win them. Uh, and I think perhaps, you know, a Europa League place is, is you know, a creditable performance for them and, and what they might have to resign themselves to. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's a 2 balls race. But Liverpool need to keep the momentum, the pressure on Spurs, to try and find out if that weakness still is in that mentality. Um, because, you know, they could still nick it. And uh, uh Spurs fans could get quite anxious for the uh, YR lane this season. So, yeah, they, they've got to keep focused on that because that that could be what salvages Liverpool's season. The sure issue is, John, as well, just before we move on, that
2: if they don't get in the top four of Liverpool, the chance of they'll probably finish in the top six, they'll be in the Europa League. And that's just not great for them in terms of. You know, extra games, a lot of Thursday games, Sunday games. You know that's going to be debilitating for Liverpool.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I do think it will be a it'll be a stark reality, won't it? It'll be a it'll be a, you know um a real wake up call. I think for, for for a set of fans that have really enjoyed the fantastic ride under Jurgen Club. So let's see what comes next. But honestly, the Carabao Cup final this weekend, it looks a fantastic advertising prospect, doesn't it, really? A real glamour final between you know two two fantastic clubs. It makes me think of, of way back in the day when I had a Super Striker set and the original Super Striker came as Manchester United against Newcastle. And I was thinking a few years on, I was thinking, yeah, these are the best two clubs in the country. Well, they absolutely are again at Wembley on, on, on Sunday. And it's it's a fabulous occasion, isn't it, for Newcastle in particular to be back in a major final. And for Eric Ten Hag for United, you know, this is it, isn't it, really? The first chance of silverware. They've come a long way in a short space of time. You know, Matt, you know, it's it's a trophy, isn't it, that really is worth winning. And for all the detractors and for all the sort of naysayers it's generally a grammar final. Is generally also featuring, normally features Manchester City. Doesn't doesn't this year? But I mean, it's it's you know, it really should be a very special occasion, shouldn't it?
0: Yeah, I just hope that uh, Newcastle, the way they've been playing, turn up and make it a, a showcase final. Um, Current year you know, was they they were in the, the FA Cup final and were very disappointing. Um, you know, their recent form suggests that perhaps. The big big mash nerves are getting to them, maybe, uh, so hopefully they turn up, play some football, do the play their best game, and you know give their fans what they they so desperately want, which is you know a really good shot and a trophy um Obviously, their goalkeeper' situation is hugely unfortunate, um and that could be the teller because I think Newcastle's best chance of winning is to keep a clean sheet um and you know. It, it's a big call cool whether you play uh, Lloris Carrias in goal for the first time for an English club, I think since 2018 Champions League final, which I watched again on Google and on uh, YouTube, and it doesn't get any better for him. Um, so, yeah, no, it's going to be a fascinating game. And United, I mean, people talk about it being the launch of a new era like he was with Mourinho's Chelsea and Liverpool more recently. I don't think they're that strangers to, to silverware that is quite as serious as that. But they do need a steady stream of success at Old Trafford to, you know, to keep the club going. And uh, their fans will be up for it as well. It should be, I mean, as, as so often in the Carabao Cup final, it should be a great occasion.
1: Yeah, yeah, Jeremy. I mean, it's, it's a great opportunity for Newcastle, isn't it? To say that, to say that the two Army are excited just doesn't do it, do, do it justice, really, does it?
2: Well, I've already got the bus parade booked in for Tuesday. But they won't have one, obviously, if they lose, which is not a, much of a surprise.
1: I uh, like that, that story, you know, smacked me across the chops yesterday because we did, I mean, um, you must confess, we had a laugh amongst ourselves here. But which team has a bus parade if they come second? I mean, what? Come on. I mean,
2: it's the most ridiculous notion. Well, I can confirm that if I don't win the lottery this weekend, I won't be going to the pub to celebrate. That's really good of you. To be well, I might be able to anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's great for Newcastle. What is it, fifty? They 55, I Was it the last one a trophy? It's a, it's it's a, a tangible proof that they are going in the right direction. Eddie Howe, you know, they're probably going to spend a lot of money in the summer. Um, now they've got wealthy owners, so they're they're they are now a force to be reckoned with. And if they can win it, it'll be statute time for Eddie Howe, because you know they win so little Newcastle. But he's like you he touched on me earlier. It's great for Carabao, the sponsor, isn't it? They've got an, an ideal final. Two massive clubs, massive traditions, massive histories, and wh- whoever wins, it will be a, a fascinating story. Because obviously, United have not won anything since 2017, so it's almost six years since they won something, and that's staggering, really, for a club of their their size um, and history in the game. So um, it'd be big for either manager. I've got to say. I mean, if Ten Hag wins it, it'll be it'll make you see whatever happens between now and end of the season it will make his season success and you know to, to win a trophy in his first season would be astonishing to out now when you think about where they were when he took over and where they are now he was out for dinner wasn't he, with Fergie the other night I mean picking his brains so you know that's not going to do him any harm um, you know he's, he's obviously a clever man He's worked out what works at United and what doesn't and they are Full steam ahead towards winning silverware on a regular basis again, Yeah,
1: I mean, it is amazing, isn't it? What he's done because first two games of the season, you know, you're thinking, Where, where's this going? People are immediately sort of saying, he's he the right choice? And, you know, yeah, that's what you get with United, isn't it? But basically, you know, you're supposed to get instant success, and everyone thinks, oh, well, that's impossible. It's going to take time. Well, actually, <laughs> he's just done amazing, isn't he? You know, I, I think it is a uh, people laugh at me when I say this, but I think he's, he, he's built a team out of the most imbalanced squad. You know, he's missing key players, their issues. I mean, Casemiro made a huge difference. But, you know, it, it looks a very, very strange team to me and not a classic team by any form of imagination. And yet he's somehow, managed, you know, which is a massive tribute to his management, that he's built a team out of that squad. He signed the right players for the right positions. So obviously he signed, like you said, Casemiro, who's
2: made such an impact in midfield. Um, he signed Ericsson, who we all know the quality of Ericsson. and know he's injured at the minute. Um, and he signed Martinez, who has basically been the rock around which United's defence has been built. And it's, you know, he's, he's made some big calls. He, he's obviously got rid of Ronaldo. He's left Maguire out, you know, who basically would just get picked regularly and regularly without. In respect of his form, he would just always be in the team, and he's taken. A, he's a club captain, McGuire, and he's left him out. And you know, the chances are, I think McGuire's well, probably leaving the summer. He needs to be playing, but he's made some brave calls. He didn't mess about to and it's what it's what United needed. I think there was an element of they've gone a bit soft under Solskjaer, and then Renyi, and the players came and went and did what pretty much what, what they wanted. There was no sort of discipline. Um, Clearly, the training methods were, were not up to scratch and they have no plan. And he's changed everything in what, eight months? Um, so it's been astonishing, really. And it's actually in the title race. I don't think they'll win the title, but they're in it. Well, they're five points behind. So, you know, there's still a long way to go this season. And I mean, if you won the title, well, that'd be absolutely one of the greatest stories ever in English football the world, but you know. no. But I think they're going to go close. But, you know, they're the only team in Europe's top five leagues that can still win four trophies this season, and I expect them to win on. Oh, listen, I don't think they'll win four trophies, but I expect them to win on Sunday. And you know that, like Matt said, that's just a, such a great springboard for moving forward. You know, for confidence and belief, and it'll make that that those players has got hungry to win more. That's what that's what the top players do. They, they are just district as the one to keep winning.
0: Matt, who do you make favourites Sunday? Yeah, I think United are favourites. Um, partly because of Newcastle's form, partly because of the goalkeeper thing we've said before, which is bound to affect the belief of the defence as well, uh, and partly because I think, like we say, Ten Hag's really got the United players playing for each other, and they know how big it is for the club to be winning trophies. I mean, for all the, the compliments that have been paid. Uh, it's a ten hug. A Manchester United manager is measured on what he wins. I mean, we, we, we've laughed about Pochettino on this podcast often enough, but at Spurs, you don't have to win things to be a good Spurs manager. You do have to win things to be a good Manchester United manager. That's about bizarre i have ever mainly because it's such a big club, and that's the measure of success at United. What about Spurs? Yeah, no, but Spurs aren't that big a club in terms of the expectation I mean, they're trying to engineer themselves to be a big club with their infrastructure and everything else, but they're not there yet. Um, And at the moment, United, well, United always have been. And if they're not winning things, you're not a good United manager. It's as simple as that. It's a really harsh um, reality. But, and he's come from so far behind and done so well, that I kind of hope he does win it or win something substantial this season. Just to say, put the crown on it and say, no one can take this away from me. I've done this. Um otherwise it's too easily forgotten in the annals of history, uh, you know, what he has achieved this season. I mean?
1: Before we move on to United, and and, and it would it would follow on seamlessly, of course. The Newcastle and their ownership. The Newcastle fans are obviously bathing in this in this glory, enjoying the pit, you know, the the glory on the pitch and the, the upturn in fortunes under Eddie Howe you know, the, the sort of kind of tell me ma, I'm going to Wembley song. Is any of that tarnished? But do, do you have to take that, you know, the ownership and where the money is coming from and where, where it's being bankrolled from in, into consideration in this Newcastle fairy tale?
2: You're always asking a difficult
1: question, don't you?
2: Yes. Look, there, whatever happened... Newcastle in the next five, 10 years, however much success they have, it will always be against that backdrop we all know about, which is, you know, they are owned by Saudis. Um, sorry, I'm just lost your my screen. And, and, you know, we don't have to go into the details of, of, of the kind of people they are in Saudi Arabia, been well documented. But actually, Eddie Howe has fashioned a team there this season that has not really been that expensively put together. I know there's Sanguimara's in field, quite a lot of money, but, you know, he's not gone mad. He didn't go mad in January. Um, and it's very much a team he's just tweaked a little bit since he took over. Obviously, all that could change in, um, in the summer and I expect him to make some big signings. But actually, if, they, if, that, if that team wins on Sunday, that is very much a team that is... It's not like a team of Galacticos or anything. So it's more down to Eddie Howe's skills as a manager more than who owns the club in terms of the wealth. But yeah, whatever happens between now and the next decade, if they win fifteen trophies, there will always be there. it will always be tarnished. But you know,
1: if win on someday the Newcastle fans they won't give a who will they they'll be absolutely loving it. No. And similarly, Matt, Manchester United You know, potential takeover. We don't absolutely know that it's going to be be a takeover yet, do we? But we we strongly suspect it will be. You know, there's two clear bidders there. You know, the Qatari interest there almost being painted against Jim Ratcliffe, the self acclaimed um, uh, Manchester United fan. Uh, Yeah. Should, Should United fans be concerned should they should they choose between the two should they you know sh- should they really want Qatari ownership
0: I think there is a danger with all these subjective uh, things of picking your own criteria as to what a good chairman is a good owner uh, was a bad owner and there's enough evidence in the history of football that um, of local owners We've done absolutely no good whatsoever for their clubs, um, or, because they're not very nice individuals. Um, and to paint uh, an ownership group with a with a you know to tarnish it with with a sort of black brush this this early, yeah, you know, for what for what their country represents, well, you know everything else. I think you could, you've just got to be careful if you're going They're either appropriate to be owners of the football club, or they're not, and and that's what we hope we'll probably come into in the last part of the of the uh, podcast. Um, you, you, what I'm trying to say is that you can make these really subjective judgments that that we don't want Qataris running our football. It does smack of pigeonholing people. And, uh, you know, if, if it is the state fund, then, yeah, okay, there are issues with that. But, but there are bad individual owners as well, and I think we need to remember that. And each case should be judged on its merits. What we don't want is a competition between all the rogues in the world who have all loads of, you know, ill-con gains, because then I think that completely demerits the whole competition. But, but I think we need to be careful about what criteria we use and that's why I think, yeah, you know, in the last part of the podcast, uh, that's such a key part um, in this government white paper of, um, of what needs to be done in terms of managing who is owning our football clubs. I'll tell you what, Grossi, one thing on United whoever, whoever gets
2: United, whether it be Jim Radcliffe or um, Sheikh Jassim, or whether if someone else comes forward, they are. And, it will split opinion in terms of the Qatari situation, but ultimately United supporters will view whoever gets the club as being a better option than the Blazers, because the Glame have been so despised. They are, you wouldn't find one United fan who absolutely would would, would would say anything positive about the Blazers because they've saddled the club with so much debt, you know, they've leveraged so much money out of the club and they've shown little interest in actually being there. So, um... Whoever does get control of United, um, they they will start on a positive footing because they are not the Glazers essentially. Yeah, yeah.
1: We're, we're, gosh, we were guys. We were we were all at the World Cup in in, in Doha, and you know, I I think we came back with very mixed views, didn't we, about about the tournament? Good football tournament, you know.
2: Came out a, no, a Santer.
1: No, well, i have never come back with a Santer. Or anyway, but um, but I um you know, I, I personally enjoyed this sort of one city element to it, but the one thing that I could never escape from is is you know, is is that particular regime, is that repressive regime and what it meant, you know, for for example, for the LGBTQ community, you know, you wouldn't feel, you know, welcome there at all, I don't think. Um, you know, it's 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 a different part of the world to what, what we're used to. Um and there was a lot of talk about it afterwards but the very fact now that we we kind of got this huge money interest in Manchester United, when we talk about sports washing, what is sports washing? It's 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 making it acceptable, isn't it? And I don't I don't know that it's it's the, you know the potential Qatari ownership and takeover of Manchester United hasn't sparked the I don't think the outcry, and maybe it's because of what you raised, Jeremy. You know because of the, because of the Glazer factor, if you like. You know, is 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 that a, a reality, Matt? Do you think then that basically that is partly because with the lack of outcry in a way, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've been from certain quarters, but I don't, you know, it hasn't caused the the, the outrage of, say, a, you know, Saudi and Newcastle, I don't think.
0: Yeah, I think to be fair, Saudi and Newcastle have taken the buffer for that. The United, we've got ourselves used to the fact that that there are nation states involved in the Premier League now Whose belief system we don't necessarily agree with, uh, and certainly don't, you know, condone in any way, um, and that has taken the brunt of it. And the arguments have already been had; they've already fallen on deaf ears. We are where we are, so there is kind of a lack of will to do it all again. At Manchester United, I think, which is a shame because all the, the valid reasons not to have people in charge of a football club, which is effectively a massive cornerstone of a community um, where each football club has its own community and it's all about the fans, the people uh, and and if those individuals are not being treated equally by the club's owners or not seen as equal by the club's owners, that is a massive problem. It should be something that's all about togetherness. A football club is coming together to support the team and if there is divisiveness in the belief system at the, the, the very top of a football club, that can never be a good thing. And that's why, you know, legislation perhaps is required. But I think it's really just really dangerous Subjective, say, oh, the Qataris equals bad. You know, Americans also equals bad, but for different reasons in the Glazers. Um, And, you know, there needs to be a a coherent system where we say, who do we want to be in charge of our football clubs? And uh, make it an absolute sort of, as has nailed down uh, a list of criteria as is, is possible to have. The fact is, John, you know, whether we like it or not, most people don't like it.
2: Qatar, Saudi Arabia, that, that section of the planet in the Middle East that contains some of the world's richest men, and they have staggering wealth. So whenever a club like Manchester United or Liverpool or whoever is going to go for sale they are going to be at the forefront of any bidding war. So, you know, and just have the like same sort of World Cup in Qatar. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if there's, if there's going to be a World Cup in Saudi Arabia in the next 10 years, uh, 15 years maybe. Uh, the Club World Cup, that's over there. So, you know, they are not going away is what I'm trying to say. And you can argue against their um, human rights records all you like, but it's not going to kick them down, basically.
0: And as a final thought on that, from me, um, I think the Premier League will be a lot better at saying you play by our rules than FIFA were um, and when it came to putting the foot down in terms of, you know, if they want to play in the Premier League and be part of the Premier League, then they accept the Premier League's way of doing things. Whereas obviously FIFA, with their various U-turns, or a number of important issues uh, around the World Cup, completely negated the whole idea of it shining a light on a different culture and perhaps... You know, give me a chance to write a few uh, wrongs over that.
1: Well, on a similar subject, we, you know, let's move on to the, the the publication today of the of the white paper and the you know the governance of of football. Um, you know, uh, independent regulators be appointed. What does it mean, really? I mean, I think it's good news. You know, as I see it, for fans, isn't it? You know, because the licensing system will, you know, if you want a license as a football club, you have to engage with fans and give them a say, um, which is you know, which is really important, um. You know, the owners and directors test, I think, you know, that there will be one consistent and then basically that will take away, I think, the doubt and then basically move it into uh, one sphere. The thing that really strikes me is that there's still no uh, financial agreement and share between the Premier League and the rest, if you like, which is obviously at the top of that agenda, at the top of that list is, is the EFL. And, um, you know, I mean, it's clear, isn't it, that basically the uh, the Premier League, um, sorry, um, the, the, the the recommendation from the white paper basically says, you guys have got to come to an ag- agreement. And if you can't, then, then basically we'll step in and, and, and broker that agreement for you. But it does seem strange to me that that's, that that's the starting point that you come in at because the EFL are not in a strong bargaining position at the moment and it it, it, I don't know it feels it doesn't doesn't strike me as that basically the regulator is going to be a sort of in a a strong position to help negotiate that really I mean I just surely there's there's more help at hand isn't there from Premier League clubs or is that expecting too much
0: John you were there when the COVID hit and uh, of course we've got to reach out down the pyramid we'll help them out and that just melted away and melted away as people's, we've got to look after our self-ology just kicked in and that's always going to be the way with the Premier League the idea of having an independent regulator backed by the government is that they can say to the Premier League look, unless you give this money pass this money down the pyramid you will not be allowed to operate that's, that's the weapon that Nobody's had the FA haven't got. They can plead, they can beg. And that's effectively what everyone's going cap in hand to the Premier League saying, please give us some of your money. And uh and yeah, the Premier League say, Well, yeah, we're the ones who've negotiated all these deals. We've done this. Yeah, we're entitled to keep it. Uh, and and the argument against that is, yeah, but we we support you, we provide you players, and if it wasn't for us, it's all emotive stuff. Um, and for instance, the government to be supporting in this current climate, to be supporting football in any way is absurd when there's so much money coming into the game. I find that really hard, you know, when we've got everybody on strike, um, everybody, you know, nurses still, you know, struggling for pay, all the rest of it. You can't be giving the government can't be giving any money to football. Football makes enough money to go around to support the whole structure. The Premier League just need to be persuaded to let go of more of it, to, to let it filter down and support the community clubs that do so much good in their areas. And they've not been able to do that historically. They've always fought against it. And uh, and, uh, and when push has come to shove, they've backed away from the big open proposals that they always make. Um, now the government are going to get tough. Funny enough, I bumped into Tracy Crouch on a train on the way to a Spurs game uh, just the other week. Well, it was pleased to see you. He was delighted. Um, yes, yeah, so we were we, we were nattering. Spurs. She, she's a real fan. We're in first class. again, do not uh, No, no, neither was she. More importantly, but uh, because she's a real fan, she understands what fans want. She's done a superb piece of work behind this white paper, and now it's a big chance for for for, for, the, for this country to put football in a place where it needs to be. My big concern is what are FIFA going to say about it? Because they say specifically Rule 15C says there's to be no political interference in the game. They've bad countries like Sudan, Malawi, Nigeria, Pakistan, Venezuela, where governments have got involved. They threatened to kick Spain out of the 2018 World Cup when their uh, sports council uh, threatened to get involved in the elections of the Spanish FA president. And this has got a long way to run. And ultimately, the government have got to be bold enough to say, we're doing this for the good of football. So we are going to withstand any threats from FIFA to to basically kick England out of the international game, which could be along the line. It's going to be a dirty war because the Premier League are going to fight hard, but it's an important one, a once and perhaps a generation chance to get this game back on track. And, uh, you know, people have got to have the courage to see this through now. Yeah,
1: it is. A, it is a,
0: you make it all regulated. Oh, well, okay, I'll take it, yeah.
1: Jeremy, you know I, mean? I mean, I have to say, I can see the Premier League point of view in the basic, The clubs don't want to bail out a reckless spender, a reckless team like Derby, who push themselves to the wire. You know, you know, Derby, I think, in previous some previous meetings, have boasted just about how much wealth they've got. And then when it all fell apart, why should Premier League clubs have to bail out? But, you know, I also think that the not every club is like a Darb. You know, the vast majority, as Matt says, are community-run clubs. You know, a lot of grassroots football produced the Premier League stars of tomorrow. Yeah. A lot of EFL clubs are outside the parachute payments. You know, the parachute payments the EFL argue against, don't they? Because it it artificially inflates the the championship. Uh, When you consider the transfer window that we've just had, surely there's more money to to filter down, to be spread out. There cannot be surely much of an argument against the Premier League doing more, you know, from a financial sense.
2: Obviously, you look at how much money Todd's only spent, the Chelsea owner, they spent a quarter of a billion quid in less than two weeks. Obviously, that's that's his money. and he will argue, I can spend it how I Fair enough. But it's just such a bad luck when you see a club like Chelsea spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds on players. And then, you know, you hear that they're having a meeting and with, with the EFL and they're being selfish about how much um, of the money from revenue streams, TV money filters through down to the lower clubs. So it's just a bad luck. And like Matt said, the fact that we are having a white paper on the English game, the national sport, tells should tell everyone in this country that actually that this, this game we, that we all love is is not sustainable enough or stable enough because COVID showed how fickle the game is. There's a lot of club foundations are built on sand, essentially. So there has to be some gear from the Premier League teams. There has to be, otherwise, you know, we're gonna going to go around in circles. I mean, you know. Rick Parry had a meeting this week, didn't he, where he said that, I think they, they won 25%. They get 17 currently. So, you know, I'm not I'm not into finances, but that doesn't seem like a massive ask from the EFL's point of view. Surely there's got to be some give from these big clubs, especially because, you know, they are eating all, all the pie at the minute. And, you know, like Matt said, the, these clubs, they're community clubs, They they... People live for these football clubs. It's such a huge part of their lives, and if they go,
1: regard business, it's
2: gonna, it's gonna be disastrous.
1: Absolutely, Yeah, I hope they can uh, reach some arrangement because I just don't feel as if you know. I think it's a shame that it's been left like this because I just don't. As I said, I don't think the AFL is in a great bargaining position. Who,
2: who, who appoints the regulator and who, who is it? Who, what field of what field of work is that person likely to come from?
1: Well. <laughs> Uh, I think Gordon Brown has been mooted at some point in the past, and he, but um, I, I, I actually think that, in a way, he shouldn't be a football person, you know, of the overall regulator. Well, they've probably got to have a handle on the game, all this thing about, you know, a proper football person, all that sort of stuff, actually. It probably needs to be more of a cold-hearted business um, you know, person, really, I would I would suggest. But it just because they can take a sort of a... a a non-emotive view because as soon as you get wrapped up in emotion I think people lose their minds on in in football don't they and you know don't see wood for the trees really of course you know that's probably pie in the sky but it'll be it'll be really interesting the other thing that really strikes me is that you know make no bones about it the previous Prime Minister Liz Truss clearly didn't want the football regulator um the current prime minister is, is then pushed ahead with a football regulator. Um, I would strongly suggest then that perhaps the sort of kind of maybe a Labour government might push harder on the football regulator, you know, for for you know more of a, more of a share, for example. And all this shows and plays into Matt's point that however much you say it's an independent regulator independence only gets you so far really because there has to be some degree of political element and political argument even if this regulator is apolitical then I'm sorry but a change of government would see a bigger push for you know the Labour's DNA surely is, is more about sort of kind of you know a bit more of a share whereas the you know the Tories stand for something else and it's you know that's the way that politics works, and so I do. I do feel as if it, it would. It's very, very difficult. I think to maintain a um, a neutral view and in and independence within this, and that's where I'm inclined to agree with with Matt. That basically, I can't see <laughs> quite how you can maintain an independence and independence in in into. Playing into this, and I wonder whether FIFA might ever have, have a sort of a say. Yet. It it's it, it's a really interesting point.
2: Will will the new regulator have to pass the new uh, stringent fit and proper person test?
1: <laughs> <laughs> It'll be interesting, really, to see. You know, so I think that I mean, you know, I, I've I've been sent the white paper, and uh, you know, I think it's uh, under embargo until it's it's actually announced in Parliament. But I mean, it's ninety nine pages long, and it's a uh, yeah. It's um, it's 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 interesting, really. But um, uh, it'll be interesting to see what's so all the the full details. I think the government are doing some briefing later on, aren't they? And uh, um, you know, so the devil is always in the detail, and perhaps it will be, it will be um, you know, you, you know that detail will will underline just exactly where their priorities are. But at the moment, I did feel a bit you know, from the details that we've got so far, it felt a little bit underwhelming, really. And I wish they'd sort of kind of bared their teeth. It's great for fans, please don't get me wrong, and it's been welcomed by the majority of people. But I do, I do worry that basically it won't be enough, I don't think, to to promise a, a, a better share, a fairer share for the EFL. But guys, listen, we're we're going to finish on, on John Motson just because just before we came on air and we started broadcasting, we we, you know, had the sad news confirm, confirmed that the you know, legendary BBC commentator, famous for his, his, his fantastic commentaries and, and sound bites and insight in, into the game as well as his sheepskin coat, um, had, had sadly passed. And you know, I don't know, perhaps a couple of recollections. Can I start with you, Matt, What's your, what would be your tribute?
0: We bumped into him, then we' occasionally in yeah you know, behind the scenes before games or whatever. What always struck me is he was always talking about football, always talking, you know about the the latest little minutiae and whatever. His knowledge was exceptional. We're We're of an era, um, you're slightly older than me, of course, but we're of an era that we grew up with John Watson um uh, as the main BBC commentator, uh, and his voice kind of narrates any football in your head. Yeah, is that that sort of standout? And and it was the <laughs> the abiding image with everything that's being shown at the moment is him stood in his sheepskin coat on that snowy pitch. Uh, and it was he would go to every length to try and give the best that he possibly could. And I, and I know he was, you know, speaking to some of the the younger commentators. He was always a a very giving mentor for them as well. Uh, and uh, yeah and uh, basically just a football man through and through and yeah his excitement of the game his love of the game um, you know always came through in his commentary and you know brought some of the dullest games to life you don't appreciate it well John
2: I mean we we do because we know people in broadcasting who work in television and, and radio the amount of research these guys have to do because they are constantly talking while the game is ongoing and they have such a vast knowledge of every player, every statistic, every memory, and all the history of that fixture. It involves, you have to be a a bit of a nerd to to do your job properly. And We know some fine guys who work in our industry who are on the top of the game, but, you know, John Monson, I met him a couple of times. The lovable nerd, I've got to say, you know, just loved the game, didn't he? Live for the game. Um, And obviously he was commentating on that famous Ronnie Radford goal. Um, when Newcastle got dumped out of the FA Cup. But like Matt said, I think he started on match of the day in 1971, which is the year I was born. So I grew up, my memories of him as a child, he was the voice of football, basically, in every FA Cup final. He nailed it without kind of a doubt. And, you know, if you watched another game with another commentator back then, you almost felt like it wasn't quite the same because it wasn't John Motson who commentated he'll be go down as a legend of the game. I'm just looking at his stats here. He covered more than 200 England games ten World Cups, ten European championships and twenty nine FA Cup finals, which is a, quite a staggering broadcasting career though. And he got home, got awarded OBE
1: deservedly. So yeah, it'll be sadly missed Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I must say I did I sort of, you know, obviously came across him in a sort of professional capacity, but he was involved in sort of kind of North London Sunday football and sort of kind of had a champion to team, you know, that sort of kind of played. I, I live in North London, played Sunday football for years and basically you know, came came across him and, uh, you know, there he was, as passionate on the sidelines watching Sunday football, you know, as he was was sort of almost in covering, you know, sort of the high profile FA Cup final or whatever it might be for the BBC, which to me just underlines just how passionate he is about football and the pure love of the game, basically. You know, just, just wants to be involved. I mean, it was interesting, wasn't it, for a while the BBC almost, I think, enjoyed this sort of almost a rivalry between Motti and and, and, and Barry Davis, basically, as, as to kind of, it was, the, it, was, it was the lead commentary and it felt like, you know, you kind of either in the Motti camp or the Barry Davis camp, I'm sure that basically neither of the individuals would see it like that. But I just think that he was just, you know, it was a, a, it, that in particular was a, a, a golden time of the greats, you know, because you had Brian Moore, I think, as well, you know, often you see the sort of the reruns, you, you, you hear a sort of a young Martin Tyler who's obviously, you know, just absolutely fantastic commentator too. And, um, you know, and then sort of Clive Tilsley sort of kind of then coming through. It's just a golden era, wasn't it, really, that Motty almost started. I mean, think that's, that's the point, isn't it? There's sort of kind of, he was sort of, you know, young on the scene and, you know, just started this incredible era of commentators. And obviously, these,
2: these guys' voices become part of your life. You know, they become synonymous with their chosen sports. So, M- Motty with football, you know, Peter Alice with golf, Dan Maskler with the tennis, you know. They were all the people I grew up with. With their, they just, their voice became just ingrained in your mind when you were watching a chosen sport.
1: Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like it's sort of kind of well, I always think of it as, you know, the James Alexander Gordon sort of, you know, the, the the, the the classified results on, on sport report basically is just ingrained in your, in your kind of thoughts. Yeah. And Peter O'Sullivan with that horse racing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, you know, it's so, so, so sad, but an absolute legend and, and, you know, part of the fabric of football basically. So, um, you know, we, 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 we send condolences and wishing well for the, you know, wish his family well, basically to, to you know, over the next, uh, while or so because you know we're saying goodbye the passing of of a true football great absolute legend of the game anyway on that on that rather somber note i'd just like to thank you for tuning in and thanks guys for joining and um and yeah i hope to see you again same time same place next week